we are today ending in an era. I wasn't necessarily looking for that response. We have, for the last 18 weeks, skipping over Christmas and uh, New Year's, we have been talking about chapters 6 and 7 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I know it seems like just yesterday that we started off in chapter 6, but we have, in fact, been spending 18 weeks on these passages that have to do with marriage and sexuality. You may be glad to know that next week we're going to take all of chapter 8 in one swing. And our guest will be Scott Slater, who's the canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Maryland, our partners here in this crazy endeavor God has us on. But we have been involved in exploring what it is that Paul has to say to us about these most controversial issues of marriage and sexuality and The bottom line, as we've seen, is that Paul basically says there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who are married and people who are not married. And people who are married should live like they're married, and people who are not married should not live like they're married. Married folk ought to live like they're married and do all the things that married folks do, including supporting each other in every way that married people pledge to each other that they will support each other. And you can think of the marriage vows that you may have taken or the ones you may have heard others take at the last time you went to a wedding to, to love and to respect, to care for in sickness and in health, to look after them in their needs, to provide comfort and companionship. And a lot of these are euphemisms that are used in this very public setting where there are lots of kids running around for, among other things, the intimacy that is expected to be part of a marriage. The idea that there would be marriage without intimacy is utterly alien to Paul. In fact, he says, the husband and the wife belong to each other. Their bodies aren't just their own, but they belong to one another. Each of them has a legitimate claim Each of them has a legitimate right to the other one. And it's because of that that marriage is a state that many folks, Paul says, find themselves in. People find that their passions, their sexual desire is such that it needs to be satisfied. They're not able to to live in a way where it is not. And so Paul says, for those folk, you should get married. Please, get married. Paul's ideal, Paul's preference, is that people be celibate. Paul thinks that if people are not married, they don't have to deal with all the distractions of being married, which means they can be more effective in serving the Lord Paul says, this is the choice I've made. I think it's great. I would commend it to you. And a whole lot of other folks are like, well, that's good for you, Paul. Not going to go so well for me. Thank you. And so for those folks, Paul says, great, go ahead and get married. So there are two categories, people who are married and people who are unmarried. Married folk ought to live like they're married. Unmarried folk ought to live like they're not married. If you can't handle being unmarried, then you should get married. And then if you can't handle being married, you should get unmarried, right? 
No. No, Paul does not say that at all. Interesting. Here in the last two verses of chapter 7, Paul says that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes but in the Lord. Now, in my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. I think I too have the Spirit of God, but I also know that just because I think something is a good idea doesn't mean you all are going to do it. And I also know that just because I think something's a good idea, God's not going to gift all of you with what you need to live that way. And so while I would prefer that everybody be celibate, and where I would prefer, Paul says in the example of a woman whose husband dies, I'd prefer that she remain unmarried, that she remain a widow. I recognize that may not be the best option for her. That may not be the way she is most able to serve God and to live in a way that pleases Him, to honor God with her body. And so, in that case, she is free to marry anybody else. Now, wrapped up in the, this language, this idea that she is free to marry, wrapped up back in verse 15 where Paul says that if, if, a, if a person, if a believer, if a Christian is married to somebody who's not a believer and that person leaves them, that person says, I am not going to be married to somebody who is following this dead Galilean carpenter, then you can't stop them and you're not bound. If, if, you have, if somebody has divorced you, then you're divorced. You're unmarried. There's married and there's unmarried, and if somebody divorces you, you're unmarried. Now, you should, if, if somebody is married to somebody who's not a believer, that doesn't mean the believer ought to divorce that person, but if the unbeliever says, forget this, I'm gone, then you are free. See, all the way back in Exodus... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, it shows up in Exodus, but also in Deuteronomy. Back in Torah, when Moses is laying out what God has to say about divorce, he says, if a man marries a woman in whom there is an indecency, and so she becomes displeasing to him, And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and the second husband, yada, yada, yada. The point is, Moses is describing a situation in which somebody finds grounds to divorce his wife. Now, Jesus, as you recall, sharpens this a bit. When Jesus is disputing with the Pharisees, we look in Matthew chapter 19. Pharisees come to him and they test him. They say, so, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, what they're alluding to is the fact that at the time, in the first century, there was a raging debate going on among the Jewish community about grounds for divorce. The two main schools of thought were those of Hillel and Shammai. And Shammai, who tended to be more strict, said, no, Moses said, if there is a, an indecency found, i.e., if, if the woman has committed adultery or if she has otherwise failed to fulfill the responsibilities of her marriage, then 
under those grounds, yes, the man is permitted to seek a divorce. In fact, the argument among those who looked at it that way was, well, do you have to seek a divorce if your spouse has been unfaithful? And some said you do, some said you don't. But then there was the school of Hillel, which said, no, it says if there is any matter, and the Hebrew is ervat davar, any matter that is displeasing, doesn't have to be adultery, it could be that she oversalted his food. I know, I, yeah, I, I'm not defending this, I'm just saying this was the way these people thought. And, and they would say, no, it, there's any reason, if a man has any reason to divorce his wife, then he may simply write a certificate of divorce. Now, you know, of course, there were financial implications to that. She was allowed to keep her dowry uh, if that happened. It was, it was not, a, um, it was not a necessarily a simple thing, but, but basically the, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to take a side in this ongoing debate. Coke or Pepsi, they say. Well, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, they are no longer two but one. So what God has joined together, let man not separate. Well, hang on a sec, they said. How come then? How come Moses commanded that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said, Moses permitted you, he didn't command you, he permitted you to divorce your wives because of hardness of heart. But I'm telling you, anybody who divorces his wife, except for some sort of indecency, i.e. some sort of unfaithfulness, and then goes and marries another woman, he commits adultery. The disciples say, well, shoot, if this is the deal, we're better off not getting married. And Jesus replied, you know, not everybody can handle this. Not everybody can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Here again, Jesus is saying, there seems like there's some people who are called to be celibate. And if that's what they've been called to, and if there's a reason God's calling them to it, then they should accept that and live that way. But you shouldn't be thinking of marriage as simply a disposable arrangement. Now, that certainly was not the heart of marriage as it was understood broadly in the Jewish community, but there certainly was a strain of teaching that would permit that. That differs, incidentally, from what we find in marriage contracts in, in the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman marriage contracts almost read like prenups. There was almost an expectation that there was eventually going to be a divorce. There's, uh, in fact, you find writings where people talk about how remarkable it is that they managed to stay together and that they're separated by death rather than divorce. But what Jesus is alluding to is this, this Jewish expectation that, no, we, we live out this one man, one woman, binary, complementary thing that, that God made us for, and that we do that unless there is something that gets in the way of that in a very serious way. 
See, what's going on with this, what's going on with the debates that the rabbis have, what's going on with what Paul says is, is there is abbreviation in this text, these texts. You, you have no doubt noticed this. When you read Scripture, there's, it's, it tends to be very, very compact, very sparse. You have to kind of read between the lines to understand the flow of what's going on. One of the reasons for that is, quite simply, uh, a whole lot of the folks who were transmitting this over the years, uh, especially in the case of the Old Testament, were illiterate. So you would construct these narratives in a way that they could be remembered and passed along. In the case of a lot of these rabbinic debates, if you read them, they're almost impossible to read unless you kind of know the rules of, of how, they're, how those conversations are structured so you can... Uh, fill in some gaps so you understand what it means when one rabbi is saying this and another rabbi is responding that way. In all these cases, there's always, there are statements made with an understanding that everybody reading them is reading them in a particular situation where they know the ways in which those statements would be understood. And they know times in which there would be commonly understood, commonly expected exceptions. I'll give you an example. Joe, we, we have this, this bulletin board outside. Uh, we're supposed to write down what we're thankful for and clip it up on the bulletin board. Joe put the Orioles schedule on there, which I thought was a nice move. Uh, but when you go to an O's game, if you park up north of the, of the, uh, the stadium, as, as we usually do, and you walk down... Uh, Packer Street, and you cross over Pratt Street, there's this sign, there's a walk, don't walk sign. And it is routinely ignored. It is not ignored because people are trying to get run over. It's ignored because there is a cop there directing traffic. And you're not supposed to follow what the sign says at that time. You're supposed to follow what the cop says. And if the cop says cross, even if the sign says don't walk, you cross, Right? Likewise, if you're driving on Pratt Street and the light is green, but you've got hundreds of people crossing Pratt Street because the cop told them to, you don't drive through them. I hope. You know, I, I got a, I confess, I got a, I got a ticket once for driving on the shoulder. I was on the beltway, I was late to a meeting, I was frustrated and everything was jammed up and so I, my exit was coming up and I slipped over the shoulder and and naturally, I, I got caught. You can't drive on the shoulder. You'll get a ticket. But if there's a dead deer in the road in front of you, you better drive on the shoulder. Your other option is to stop and back up traffic until somebody comes and takes the deer away or to run it over and take your bets. You don't drive on the shoulder, but of course, sometimes you're going to have to. My favorite example of this, and I just saw another one of these yesterday, I, I love this. I, yesterday, so yesterday I got a chance to uh, speak at my friend David's synagogue, um, and I'm so glad he's there this morning too so he could send me a picture of this because the deal is on Saturday morning you're not supposed to use your cell phone. So I was there you know, on the Sabbath, and I saw this, and I wanted to take a picture of it, but I wanted to honor their restrictions. So thankfully David's there this morning. He sent this to me. This is a sign that is over the urinals in the men's room. It reads... Please do not flush any tissues or paper towels in the toilets. We have a septic tank system and it cannot handle these items, right? All good so far. Only toilet paper should be placed in the toilets. 
please use the trash cans for anything else. Now, according to a literal reading of this text, if you only place toilet paper in the toilets and you use the trash can for anything else, you're going to get thrown out of the synagogue and not invited back to speak. Fortunately, being a sensitive reader of texts, I knew that what they meant was that the only thing of a toilet paper variety that should go in the toilets is toilet paper, specifically the kind they got for their delicate septic system. They did not mean that any other business to be done in the bathroom should be done in the trash can. It's funny, but it, the same principle applies when we look at stuff like this. Because there always were understood to be reasons why divorce was acceptable, why it was entirely proper in both Jewish and in Greco-Roman culture of the first century, and adultery was not the only case in which that was true. Desertion was another one. If your spouse up and leaves you, you are not responsible to remain married, to remain bound to that person if that person has left and gone off with somebody else. If your spouse has neglected you, there again, in, in many of these, in many of these uh, marriage contracts, there would be a requirement that the wife would be provided a certain amount of flour and a certain amount of oil and so forth. There, there were a number of things that the husband was expected to provide to the wife. Likewise, the wife was expected to provide things for the husband. And if those provisions were not being met, if, if, the, if the requirements of the marriage were being neglected, then a person had a right, every right in the world, and nobody would hold it against them to go to court and say, you need to either force my husband to give me the things that he's supposed to give me by right by this contract, or you need to tell him that he has to write me a certificate of divorce and send me away with my dowry so that I can get on with my life. That was entirely understood, entirely accepted in both Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures of the first century. So Paul and Jesus are speaking against that backdrop. You always have to be careful about making arguments from silence, but broadly speaking, if they had wanted to make exceptions to these very commonly understood rules, they certainly would have had to point that out for people to know what they meant. It would be like Jesus saying, no, when, when I say only toilet paper goes in the toilet, I mean only toilet paper. He'd have to make that really clear for you to take that literally. But furthermore, bound up with this understanding of marriage in both Jewish and Greco-Roman culture, the first century, was the idea that divorce always implied the possibility of remarriage. The only exception of that, to that would be in a case where a person divorces his spouse, his wife, and then wants to marry the person he's been having an affair with. That could be prevented. That could be uh, nullified. But other than that, Divorce always implies remarriage. And here I'm, I'm resting on the research of a guy named David Instone Brewer. Um, he wrote this book called Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. 
um, which is uh, complicated and technical. And, he, and then he wrote a, a popular version of a divorce and remarriage in the church, which we have in the church library. And I commend to you. And then if you really want to get complicated, we can look at the, at the Greek and the Hebrew. But what he points out is that uh, going all the way back to the ancient Near East, back to Babylonian marriage contracts, uh, the language includes uh, phrases like, and here, here's a, if, if, the, if the grounds for divorce are established, she may go wherever she pleases, right? In, in the Jewish uh, decree of divorce, you are permitted to any man. In the Hebrew or in the Aramaic, you may be married to any man you wish. We actually found in at, at the, the ruins of Masada, uh, so which was, uh, uh, this would have been found in, in uh, uh, for, this is first century, uh, dated uh, second 72 CE, uh, this, this marriage certificate that was found uh, in, in the Holy Land, it's a Jewish divorce certificate that reads, you are free to marry any Jewish man you wish, right? So the understanding was always, always that when somebody divorced, that Basically, you entered an unmarried state. In, in a sense, it's the same to be single as it is to be divorced, as it is to be widowed. And what's interesting, here at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually kind of works up to the example of widows. He, he, he talks about divorce as something that obviously would include the possibility of remarriage, though he doesn't think it's a good idea because he really thinks that everybody ought to be celibate if they can, but he knows they can't. So he reminds them that he would like them to, you know, be married if they have to, not be married if they can get away with that, but I know you can't. I'm very disappointed in you, Paul says. You let me down. If only you were as awesome as I am. But still, you people can't keep your pants on, so get married to each other because that's the right way to do it. But but Paul establishes that that could happen in the case of a divorced person. And then at the end, he says, and so that's the same way with a widow, right? For us, we would sort of think the obvious example is a widow. I mean, if you know, your spouse dies, obviously you're not married anymore, right? How can you be married to somebody who's dead? So what Paul is saying here is really, in some ways, entirely un remarkable in terms of its immediate context, that somebody who is not married is free to get married, and that that person, if they're part of the church, should be getting married in the Lord. That's kind of the same as you may marry any Jewish man you wish. But on the other hand, it is radically countercultural. For one, in, in a Greco-Roman context where divorce was quite common, as I said, these marriage contracts almost anticipated that divorce would happen. Paul calls people who are married to stay married, to live like they're married, and to do the things that are involved in staying married, in being married, in living in that state. And Paul says if the person that you're married to is willing to stay married, then you're married. Don't, don't divorce them. Of course, then you can say, well, what about the case? How does that work in the case of, of a repentant, adulterous spouse? Let's say somebody has committed adultery, and so then you have grounds for divorce, but they want to they be married. Well, that's where it gets complicated. That's where an understanding of marriage that our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters have, I find to be very helpful. The, the understanding is that a marriage is a living thing. 
A marriage is a living thing. A relationship is dynamic, right? Um, I use the example of a guitar string. Right? A guitar string only makes a sound if it is stretched between the nut and the bridge. If it is dynamic, held in dynamic tension, then you can pluck it and it makes a sound. But if it breaks, if it is only attached on one end, it's just a piece of wire. It's not really a guitar string. It's just a piece of wire. It's not functioning as anything that is in any real dynamic tension. There's, it's the same thing with relationships. Two people are, are married to each other. That's, a, that's a, a living thing. There's something new created. We even see that when, when Jesus says, the, therefore the two have become one flesh. In Genesis, we read a man will, will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a new thing created. When two people come to the altar as two, and they leave as one, and it's this great mystery. They spend the rest of their lives, Lord willing, hoping to try to work that out, but, but the idea is that there's something living there, but, but living things can be killed. Living things can die through violent means. Adultery can be a means by which a marriage is put to a violent death, as can abuse put a marriage to a violent death. But living things can also die of neglect. They can dry up on the vine. It's possible that you have a situation where one spouse has finally realized, often because they just got kicked out of the house, that they have been starving their marriage for so long that its life is in doubt. It may well be dead. Then the question is, what do you do with something that's dead? Some would say you bury it. Others would say if there's hope of resurrection, you see if that's possible. But with this, I think I can imagine Paul saying, you know, the ideal would be if you can resurrect this marriage, do that. But if you're not able to, if you need to bury it, then you have not sinned doesn't mean it's okay to kill a marriage. But I think Paul would say that if you recognize it's dead, then you can treat it as though it's dead. And I say that because Paul is a pastor. And Paul cares about his people. And he recognizes the reality that he is teaching people, he's leading people who are imperfect or flawed. Just as God has mercy on us, as the psalmist says, because he remembers that we are but dust. And Paul also recognizes people make mistakes. People can look back and say, I wish I had done things differently, but I didn't. And so now I'm in the situation I'm in now.
And Instone Brewer, who is also a pastor as well as a scholar, says, I would not forbid a repentant murderer from joining the church, and so I cannot forbid a repentant adulterer from marrying in the church. God knows who we are. He knows our limitations. As we talked about a few weeks ago, His grace and the scope of what He is allowing, willing to allow may be far broader than we give Him credit for. And that does not mean, and please hear me, that does not mean that we are not, those of us who are married, called to do all that we can do to sustain and to strengthen and to enrich our marriages. That is the call that God places on those of us who are married. The call God places on those of us who are not married is to determine whether He is leading us to remain single or to be married and then to live well into that state of life. But in all these things, and this is what Paul, kind of the beating heart of everything in chapter 6 and 7, in all this we are called to honor God with our bodies. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a people who know intimately your grace in our lives, people who don't treat that grace as cheap. We would never be people who say, well, let's go on sinning so that grace can increase, but that we would respond with gratitude to what you've so generously given us. One of the ways we respond with gratitude is by living lives that honor and glorify you. I pray that even as we find this ethic of sexuality sometimes to be difficult, I pray that we would receive it as a good gift from you. That we would seek with our bodies as with all other things that you've given us range of control over. We would seek to honor you. I pray that this would be to the edification of your church and to the glory of your name. Amen.